so nice to see all of you here today. So uh, great to see so many folks coming back uh, after time away and um, being back in person. So glad you're here. So many uh, new faces in recent weeks and months. So glad you're here. Of course, all, all, all I know of you is, is, uh, is, is, are your eyes and how your hair looks, but uh, your hair looks better than mine, and that's a good start. So glad you're here. Everybody joining us online, probably more than usual on this rainy Sunday morning. Uh, I'm glad that, you're, that you've joined us today. Hope this is a great experience for you. Hey, uh, if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. And um, I'm so very, very glad that you're here. If you have ever been moved or uh, required to write anything substantive and you tried to do it well, then you know that writing can be a pretty lon lonely and even painful experience. Most authors will talk about writing a book as something akin to giving spiritual birth. Uh, and this, is, this has certainly been my experience writing a couple of books. And to some degree, I feel this pain every week when I sit down, look at a blank piece of paper, and know that I have to deliver a sermon to the office by about 1 o'clock on Thursday. And um, anyway, uh, it's impossible to feel the pain that I feel at that moment. But I was helped immensely several years ago when I read Anne Lamott's spectacular book on writing called Bird by Bird, and she wrote a chapter about giving yourself permission to write terrible first drafts. She actually said it in a profane way, and if you know anything about me, you know I'm not given to profanity, and I'm certainly not given to profanity uh, from the pulpit. However... Some of you are nervous right now. I need to find a way to convey what she said because the way she said what she said is memorable and it'll stick in your mind and it won't if I completely dumb it down. So, so for it to be impactful and memorable, I, I, I'm going to go PG-13 just for a moment and I'm going to warn parents in all seriousness. Uh, Distract your young ones just for a second. You ready? Distract them. Distract them. The title Anne Lamott assigns to this chapter is S-H-I-T-T-Y, First Drafts. Okay. I'm sorry. Now, she didn't spell it out. Just the way it's meant to be said is like that. And it really only works. So I'm sorry if you say it like that. And this is coming from a pastor who grew up that if you said heck, you, you had you, to rinse your mouth out with soap. So, so, but, but, so I'm going to read what she said now, and I'm going to substitute the words really terrible for the word that I just quickly spelled, all right? But you use whatever word you choose to use in your own, the privacy of your own mind, all right? So the chapter title is really terrible it's not what she said. Really terrible first drafts. She said even better news than the, is the idea of really terrible first drafts. All good writers write them. This is how they end up with good second drafts 
and terrific third drafts. I know some very great writers, writers you love who write beautifully and have made a great deal of money, and not one of them sits down routinely feeling wildly enthusiastic and confident. Not one of them writes elegant first drafts. One writer I know tells me he sits down every morning and says to himself nicely, it's not like you don't have a choice because you do. You can either type or kill yourself. We all often feel like we are pulling teeth, even those writers whose prose ends up being the most natural and fluid. For me and most of the other writers I know, writing is not rapturous. In fact, the only way I can get anything written at all is to write really, really terrible first drafts. Now, why do I say this? Well, last week we began this series where I challenged us to look at our lives like a story that we, in partnership with God, are writing. And I ask us to consider whether or not the story we are writing with our lives is meaningful and interesting and whether or not there's a moral to the story. Now, I've learned when I do this kind of teaching that there are any number of responses. And the response to last week has been, thankfully, overwhelmingly positive. But I also know there's a certain kind of negative response that gets evoked with this kind of teaching. Like, some people are overwhelmed with the idea that they actually have a responsibility to write that they must think about the story they want to tell and accept responsibility to live it. They look at the blank sheet of paper representing the next chapter of their lives or the rest of their lives and are as paralyzed as I am on Wednesday morning when I look at a blank sheet of paper and know a sermon must be written in the next 24 or so hours. But here's the deal, and any writer knows this. At some point, you just have to start writing. You must impact the plot line of your life. You must pray and imagine and decide and plan and act to write a good story with your life. Don't just let life happen to you. Insist on writing a good story. To do this, you're going to have to engage the painful process of writing. Not literally, perhaps. That's not the point. But metaphorically, you have to engage the painful process of writing. And know this, one thing that will help you get started to intentionalizing writing the next chapter of your life is to give yourself permission to write really terrible first drafts. At some point, you just have to start writing. What do you want in your spiritual life? What do you want in your physical life? What do you want in your relationships? What do you want in your career? What do you want in your ministry? Don't just sit there. Begin to write a better story and know that most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, taking some action is better than inaction. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it right the first time or maybe even the second time or maybe even the third time, but that's okay. At some point, you have to get serious about writing God's story for your life. I also know that when I do a teaching like this, there are some people who feel condemnation. Perhaps you think you, or you know you should have been more intentional about the kind of story that you wanted to write a long time ago, or you have chapters of your life that you just wish you could just rewrite all together. You wish you could tear them up and throw them away. But 
Even if you look at your story and right now you don't feel like you're writing a good story, you have to remember that God is the God of first and second and third drafts and more. God is the God of first chances and second chances and third chances and more. You may not be able to literally tear up your past and throw it in a wastebasket, but you have to know that God can redeem even the most terrible, really bad first draft. You have to ask him to come and help you write a better story. I'm reminded of that great passage in Proverbs 24 where, where, where Solomon wrote, for though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. So here's the question. Have you, have you tried and failed? Well, welcome to the club because all of us have as well in one way or another. Even the righteous fall seven times, but here's what's hap what happens. They get up. So at some point, you know, and I think all of us probably have a number of storylines in our lives. We've got stuff going on in the family, stuff going on in the career, stuff going on, you know, trying to use gift God's given us to serve in some way. And, 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 and it may be that in some area of your life, you, you just feel like you're failing. But at some point, you have to start writing again and know that God can redeem the really bad first or second or third or seventh draft and he can help you begin to write a better story now. Now, let me encourage you. If you will partner with him, God will inspire you to write a good story. And I use that word deliberately. He will inspire you. And by the way, uh, I'll, I'll mention, uh, I, I've seen a lot of enthusiasm around the fact that we have uh, uh, physical life notes again. And if you didn't know that and you're interested in that, they're either under your seat or a seat back pocket around you and you can follow along and take notes if you want or doodle, whatever uh, helps you remember what we're talking about today. And of course, you also can use the app and uh, get the life notes uh, online. And I had somebody come up to me last week all excited. They did that for the first time on their phone while I was speaking last week. I thought they were texting, but nonetheless, they said they were doing that on their phone. And uh, they were so excited because they're sending the email of the life notes and starting a folder where they're keeping all of their life notes. So uh, the fact is, when you write things down, it helps you remember it. And if, if I'm saying something worthy of remembering, you, you might want to take advantage of the life notes. So let's talk for a minute about about inspiration. We say that Scripture is the inspired Word of God. Paul said to Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Another translation says it like this, all Scripture is God-breathed, which is what to inspire means. It means to breathe. When we say that God inspired Scripture, it means He breathed on the human beings who were writing it. And, and God, then, is the source of everything in the Bible. He inspired it. Yet it's important to note that he inspired people to actually write it. So here's what Peter said. Peter said, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
So God is the source of everything in Scripture, but human beings carried along by the Holy Spirit actually physically wrote what God inspired them to write. Another way to say this is to say that God is the author, but he moves people to write. Um, Acts 3.15 says Jesus is the author of life. So, so that, that's, I think we, we get that. I, I think what, what we get confused about sometimes is what our role is in writing what God inspires. And so when Scripture was inspired, which is unique in terms of inspiration, and when you talk about Scripture being inspired, you capitalize the the first letter of the word inspired, you capitalize the I because this is a singular, unique, once in history happening, okay? When I get to the next point, you might keep that in mind. But when, when God inspired Scripture to be written, somehow or another, he, he communicated to the people who actually wrote it, and uh, he communicated what he wanted to say, yet he used their unique personalities and circumstances and so on to write it. So you actually see the humanity in God's inspired word, and it is God's inspired word, because uh, uh, God used people to do what he was inspiring people to do. Here's a simple uh, example. So, so Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. It's very well known that Paul evidently had some kind of problems with his eyesight, and, and Paul didn't physically write the letters that were written to the church, which now is inspired scripture. But he would, he would basically dictate, somebody would write whatever it was that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was saying. But when he finishes his letter to the Galatians, he actually picks the pen up and he writes these words in very large letters. He says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. So Paul takes the pen from, from the, 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 essentially the, the, the secretary and he writes these words in really large letters as if to let the Galatians know Paul really was the person writing this letter and it's like, check out my handwriting if you want. It's re this is really from me. So that's the inspired word of God. But you see Paul show up in the writing of the story. Do you understand? So, so in a similar way, not the same way, because the inspired word of God is, 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 is again a singular act in God's story. It tells us God's story. But in a similar way, if you let him, God will inspire you to write your part of his story. So last week I referenced a book by a guy named Donald Miller. Uh, it's a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. I have no idea what the title refers to, and I've read through the book a couple of times, but anyway. Um, it, so, so Donald Miller, previous to this book, wrote a, a best-selling memoir called Blue Like Jazz, really marvelous book where he, he tells his story uh, and uh, kind of writes a lot of essays about his interactions with people, and he's a great writer, so it, 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 was, a, it was a big seller. Well, a, a studio in Hollywood wanted to make a movie of his life, and so Miller started interacting with screenwriters to, to take this memoir and these essays and turn it into a story. And they got stuck in the middle of it because 
um, Miller came to realize that, at least in his opinion, his story just wasn't all that interesting. It wasn't something that would captivate people's attentions on a, on a large screen. And, and though they ended up making the movie, it's probably not something you've ever heard of. And Miller started getting fascinated in the idea of what would it be like to really live a good story. And part of what he did is he went to hear Robert McKee, who teaches that famous um, uh, seminar in Hollywood about screenwriting. And, and in fact, uh, uh, if you're interested in this at all and you're not aware of it, you should pick up Robert McKee's uh, very thick uh, and marvelous book on screenwriting. So Miller starts thinking about what would it look like to live a good story. And at some point, he began to become convinced as a believer that, that someone outside of himself, God, was actually trying to speak into his life to, 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 to uh, give Miller what he needed to be able to write this better story for his life. So here's part of what Miller says. He says, I like the part of the Bible that talks about God speaking the word into existence as though everything we see and feel were sentences from his mouth. I wish I could write that well. And then Miller says, I feel written. I believe there is a writer outside ourselves plotting a better story for us, interacting with us even, and whispering a better story into our consciousness. Later he writes, the voice, now talking about God, now inspiring this story in his life, and he starts to call God here and what God says, the voice. The voice I am talking about is a deep water of calming wisdom that says, hold your tongue. Don't talk about that person in that way. Forgive the friend you haven't talked to. Don't spell profanity from the pulpit. Actually, it doesn't say that. Don't look at that woman as a possession. I want to show you the sunset. Look and see how short life is and how your troubles are not worth worrying about. Buy that bottle of wine and call your friend and see if he can get together because remember he was supposed to have that conversation with his daughter and you should ask him about it. Then Miller says, so as I became more and more aware that somebody was writing me, I started listening to the voice and admitting that there was a writer. I admitted something other than me was showing a better way, and when I did this, I realized the voice, the writer, who was not me, was trying to make a better story. It's not uncommon, actually, to hear especially believing writers to describe the process of writing as, as if somebody was 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 writing through them, talking in, in talking about his writings, Lord of the Rings and, 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 and all of that, said that the stories flowed often arising in his mind unbidden as given things. He said, always I had the sense of recording what was already there somewhere, not of inventing. So this is why the most important thing we can do ever and always is to focus on our relationship with God. Because as we know Him better, as we pay attention to Him and His Word, He finds ways to inspire us, to carry us along, to move us forward. He somehow communicates in ways unique to who we are as individuals what it is that he wants for our lives. 
And this communication can come through a thought, an idea, a possibility, a sense of calling, through a relationship, or maybe through a sermon like this one. But somehow, I want you to know that God, who obviously is outside of you but living in you by His Spirit, wants to breathe on you. He wants to move you. He wants to carry you along. He wants to inspire you. He is not, he's not leaving you by yourself to write your own story. He will inspire you to write your part of His story. See, this is part of the adventure of being in a relationship with God. You know, I think most, I think, I don't know most, I think a lot of people think in wrong ways about what it is to get saved. And, and, and the fact is that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and you hear us always talking in these times, these types of terms around here, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're not only redeemed from sin, you're also reconciled to God in relationship, and you are restored to your purpose. All of a sudden, you get plugged back into the life God dreamed for you. And this is an adventure. Just think. If you'll pay attention, God will inspire you to write his story but now when he inspires you you have to write do you understand so the people that wrote scripture god didn't take their hand and move it like this they didn't go they wrote what god inspired them to write but they wrote it Again, that's a singular act in history, but let's just extrapolate from it this principle. You, as God inspires you, I mean, some of us are sitting in this room and you have known for however long that you're supposed to do X. You know God, you, had, you, you didn't hear God say, go do X. You didn't hear that. But somehow you know it, right? Right? You know what you have to do when you know God's inspiring you to go do X? You have to go do X. You have to do it. You must take action in your life to do the things God's inspiring you to do. This is true in your relationships. This is true in your career. This is true in your finances. This is true in your physicality. This is true in your area of ministry. All right, now then with that in mind, let me spend the rest of my time today talking about this. So first of all, I'm telling you, God is going to help you write a better story, regardless what your story has been. He's going to, he will help you if you'll pay attention. Now, let me dig into this for a little bit. It's, it's that the most important part of our story then is the development of our character. The most important part of our story is the development of our character. So I talked last week about how Donald Miller wrote that a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it is the basic structure of a good story. It's simple, but really brilliant. The basic structure of a good story is a character, which in your story, that's you. It's a character who wants something. So to live a good story, you have to want something and you have to overcome conflict to get it. This is what creates an interesting story arc. Now, let me add to that this today. 
Because Miller also said this, if the point of life is the same as the point of a story, the point of life is character transformation. If the point of life is the same as the point of a story, the point of life is character transformation. Uh, Miller wrote, in nearly every story, the protagonist is transformed. He's a jerk at the beginning and nice at the end, or a coward at the beginning and brave at the end. If the character doesn't change, the story hasn't happened yet. Watch any good movie. The point of the story is the transformation of the character from one kind of person into another kind of person. So what happens then is that a great writer will create a character and then put the character in situations where the character is transformed. And this is certainly true in our lives with God and the story that's to be written in our lives. That's in alignment with the story of God. God is most interested in the development of our character and transforming us from one kind of person to another kind of person. And to be more specific for the believer, Scripture teaches that those of us who are in relationship with God are actually being transformed into the image of Jesus. Our character is being formed in a way that helps us become more and more like the only perfect character in all of God's story, and that's Jesus Christ. So we see passages like Romans 8:28. Most of you can probably quote the, the, at least the first few words of this first verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, but it doesn't stop there. Everybody, something bad's happened in somebody's life and somebody says, all things work together. And that's absolutely true. But you have to understand what, what the point of all things working together is. You get into that in the next verse. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Why is everything working together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose? So we, the character, might be transformed into the image of the Son of God, the perfect man who came from heaven. This is the point of our story, guys. It's the transformation of our character to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all who contemplate the Lord's glory. Glory has to do with who God is and what he does. And we all who contemplate who God is and what he does are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So those of us who believe in Jesus and who are focused on God are being transformed from one kind of character to a better kind of character. In fact, we are being conformed to the image of the perfect character, Jesus Christ. So when we think about the development then of our character, when we think about the idea that being is more important than doing, we're reminded that who we are is more important than what we do. Who we are and who we are becoming is the most important part of our story. 
as with any enterprise, true success in our lives always comes down to a matter of character. So think about this promise. Because we are believers and followers of Jesus, I was just thrilled this week when I, when I frankly, when I wrote these next two paragraphs. I, I see such possibility here. So, so remember, those of us who are focused on God are being transformed into the image of Jesus. You, you are being transformed to the image of Jesus. What possibility? Because we're believers and followers of Jesus, we're being transformed into the image of the most interesting and good character in the history of the world. Consider all of his character qualities, who he is. God is at work to make you more like him. The character of Jesus is being formed in us. So we are becoming more Name all kinds of qualities that were true about Jesus and are true about Jesus. We're becoming more loving. We're becoming more adventurous. Some people, when you think about Jesus, you don't think about him being adventurous. Please read the gospel again, including the fact he made a trip from a throne in heaven to a man. Very adventurous. More, we're becoming more self-sacrificing, more faith-filled, more loyal, more patient, more powerful. and more likely to use power to serve others in alignment with the story of God. Think about any other good and interesting thing about Jesus, and remember, you are becoming more like him. You cannot help but become a good and interesting character. You say, how does this happen? The first way it happens is it happens because you focus on him, and he's transforming you into his image. I mean, that's the kind of invitation I like to give to people when I talk to them about coming to faith. Not, believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. I mean, that's all, that's true. It's important. I mean, obviously. But for some people, that's a headline. To me, the headline is, come to the life God dreamed for you. Anyway, let me spend the rest of my time then digging into this idea of character development and I'll do it this way, three mindsets to develop a more Christ-like character, and I need to talk really fast. Here's the first mindset. It is want it. Want it. So, if the basic structure of a good story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it, then we need to constantly come back to what we want. I spent quite a bit of time last week talking about this and how that what, what we want needs to be wanted in alignment with God's story or what God wants. But many of us are, are focused only on what God wants, which is a great place to start, but we need to notice that all the way through Scripture, from the very beginning, God comes to people and asks them what they want. If you're going to be a good character and live an interesting story, you have to know what you want. Cherie Baikowski, in her book, Five Years From Now, wrote, the fact is that many people who feel they didn't wind up where they wanted to be had only the vaguest idea of where that place was. And she cites a study of, of Harvard alumni 10 years after graduation to find out how many were achieving their goals. An astounding 83% have no goals at all. 14% had specific goals, but they were not written down. Their average earnings were three times what those in the 83% group were earning. 
However, the 3% who had actually written down their goals were earning 10 times that of the 83% group. Not interested in getting all of that, and, 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 and let me just say that how much money one makes is really a poor measurement of success. Let's acknowledge that. But what I want to show you is when you know what you want, and especially when you're willing to be intentional about it and write it down, you are much likely to get what you want than the people who didn't know what they want or the people who knew what they wanted but didn't get intentional about what they wanted in their life. Do you get this point? Where, where, do, where do we find the genesis for this? Genesis. From the very beginning of time, God has been saying to people, what do you want? Robert McKee in his classic story said, the key to true character is desire. In life, if we feel stifled, the fastest way to get unstuck is to ask, what do I want? Listen to the honest answer and then find the will to pursue that desire. A character comes to life the moment we glimpse a clear understanding of his desire. Behind desire is motivation. Why does your character want what he wants? Okay, so the, so the first key to developing a more Christ-like character is to know what we want. Now, typically, when we talk about what we want, we're talking about the desire for something, let's say, like a better marriage, or the ambition to build a profitable profitable business, or the, the calling to do something, some other great thing with our lives, things like that. But what if we began, and this is the money point in this in this thing as far as I'm concerned. What if we began by wanting our character to be developed to be more like Jesus? What if that's what we want first and most in our lives? So I've been encouraging you that you have to know what you want. But if you know that the most important part of the story is the development of your character, and as a believer that your character is being transformed in the image of Jesus, what if that was the first thing that you wanted? What if your prayer every morning began with, Jesus, I want to be like you? And if you got intentional about what it meant to be formed in his image. You remember the great story of Solomon becoming king over Israel? First Kings chapter 3 verse 5. That night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. Solomon replied, give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God replied, because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people of justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth, I will give you what you asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has had or ever will have. What does Solomon do? When God comes and says, what do you want in a dream? Even out of his subconscious state, Solomon knew that what he wanted first and foremost was for his heart to be right for his character to be developed, to discern between right and wrong, to have understanding, to have a sense of how things worked, to be able to govern God's people in a way that would honor God. This was a, this was a, he, you know, what do you want, Solomon? I want 
I want good character, essentially. Because, see, Solomon understood, even before this incredible outpouring of wisdom that God then gave him, he understood that everything in life comes from, comes from who we are inside. It comes from our heart. It comes from our character. Everything in life. Everything in life comes from that. This is why Solomon said, make sure that you guard your heart, Proverbs 4.23, for everything you do flows from it. I'm saying to you that if you get this character thing right, and if Jesus is being formed in you, everything else in your life then flows out of who you are. And who you are is amazing. You are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Here's the second mindset. It's to embrace the struggle necessary to develop your character. So where is character developed? Well, remember the basic structure of a good story. It's a character who wants something and who overcomes conflict to achieve it. Where is the character developed? The character is developed in the conflict. So Donald Miller wrote, writing, I'm sorry, Robert McKee said, Writing a story isn't about making your peaceful fantasies come true. The whole point of the story is the character arc. You don't think joy could change a person, did you? In other words, he's saying you don't think getting, getting what you want would change a person. He said joy is what you feel when the conflict over, but it's conflict that changes a person. And then he says, and I think this is brilliant, you put your characters through hell. You put them through hell. That's the only way we change. So you understand then, a great novelist has a character, and he establishes or she establishes what the character wants, and then the character goes after it. And when the character goes after it, they face opposition. And I'm going to, by God's grace, that's what I'm going to teach about next week if anybody wants to come back. So, so, so you face opposition, and it's in the facing of the opposition going through Hades that the character is developed. See, this is why you read, a, you, you read the great wisdom from James who said, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I mean, how many of you are thinking that way about your life? It's hard to think that way, isn't it? Ah, troubles are coming. Oh, this is awesome. I mean, I guess it wouldn't be fully human to do that, but Scripture tells us, in other words, we're supposed to understand that the troubles that are coming are being used by God to develop our character. So, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So character is developed as we fight for the thing we want. One of the things in part of my book, Live 10, that I tried to do is to redefine success. I wrote that success is the process of accomplishing those things for which we were destined in a way that honors God, loves people, and brings joy. Not very much time to dig into that, but success is the process. Success isn't when we get to the thing we want. Success is enduring the conflict we face when we're going after the thing we want because it's 
during the process that our character is developed. I love the book by John Krakauer, Into Thin Air. Perhaps you remember it, best-selling book, where Krakauer wrote about his ascent to the top of Mount Everest during the 1996 climbing season. You know Mount Everest, the, the summit of Mount Everest is the, is the highest place on the earth, 30,000, almost 30,000 feet high. At the time of, of Krakauer's writing, there had been 3,500 people who had, who had gotten to the summit, uh, and there had been almost, there had been 233 deaths. So somewhere approaching, uh, what, 7 or 8% of everyone who tried died on the way. So Krakauer writes about the years that he spent training for the three-month ascent to the top of the world. But... When he got to the summit, he was so exhausted that he was only able to stay there for five minutes, and he wasn't able to enjoy it. He spent three months ascending, and five minutes where he wanted to go. This is what he wrote, straddling the top of the world, one foot in China and the other in Nepal. I cleared the ice from my oxygen mask, hunched a shoulder against the wind, and stared absently down at the vastness of Tibet. Now that I was finally here, standing on the summit of Mount Everest, I just couldn't summon the energy to care. I hadn't slept in 57 hours. The only food I'd been able to force down the preceding three days was a bowl of ramen soup and a handful of peanut M&Ms. Under the circumstances, I was incapable of feeling much of anything except cold and tired. I snapped four quick photos, then turned and headed down. All told, I'd spent less than five minutes on top of the world. Success is the process. of getting what you want. Krakauer, at another place in his book, coined a very memorable phrase. He talked about when he looked back and remembered this whole experience, that what he didn't really remember much at all was the five minutes at the top of the world, but the unfettered pleasure of ascent. The unfettered pleasure of a sin. In other words, what he remembered were the three months of painful climbing. He personally lost two friends, died. Members of his party on the way caught in a terrible storm. It was a, it was a, you know, one of those wonderfully terrible experiences. But what he remembered was the joy in climbing. I feel like encouraging someone here who's trying so hard to get to some what you want summit in your life to understand that the process you're in right now, as difficult as it may be, is exactly where you need to be because God is using it to transform your character to be more like the person he wants you to be. And finally, mindset three. Know that as your character develops, your story becomes more interesting and you will always want more. So there's this, uh, this passage of Scripture. I've, I've referred to it and taught it and written about it a number of times, but to me it's just a great way to close today's talk. It's Romans 5. 
Paul's been exalting about what Jesus did in our lives, and then, then he offers this glorious language. He said, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. If you would, guys, would you mind just saying hope? Hope. Hope, by definition, is the happy anticipation of the good. Hope is, is, is part of what you feel when you're standing at the bottom of Everest looking up. You, you, you hope something happening in you, dopamine's being released as you look up there and other things, serotonin and so on. You look up there, that's what the studies actually say. When you hope all this stuff's flooding your being, I'm gonna get there, hope. So Paul says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I mean, this has all been so positive. And then he says, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, what do we come back to again? Hope. Wait a minute. <laughs> We've been suffering, persevering, and our character's been developed. <sighs> but this is what happens in life is we go through these processes where we keep coming back to hope. So we, we, we know what we want. We hope for what we want. And then we start going after what we want, the ascent. And when we go after anything of significance, we, we, we have to suffer for it. You know that, right? If you want something great, you will suffer for it. I mean, you want a great marriage? Does it just happen? I think, I think I celebrate 38 years next week. My wife's out of town visiting her parents, so I'm not totally sure. 38 years, 38 years. Listen, raising a family is the most wonderful thing in the whole world, but there's suffering that you have to persevere through. And man, marriage is one of the greatest places in your life if you can hang in there where your character will be developed to be more like Jesus. Really. Raising kids to adulthood, it doesn't stop when they become adults. It's just bigger problems, okay? Building a business, growing a ministry, whatever it is you want. There is suffering. And you know what? That's okay. This is where we develop character. And then we, when we, when we really develop character, we don't get, get there and say, okay, I'm done. I'm never going to try to do anything great again. No, we just go to new levels of hope where we always hope for more. And this is... What happens when we're writing a great story with our lives? Let me close. The band can start to come out if you want, guys. Let me close with Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans 5. I just love the way that he translated this passion. This is where he said, we, always, we boast and hope of the glory of God, and we suffer, and we persevere, and we build character, and then we always hope for more, and hope doesn't let us be ashamed. Here's how Peterson translated. We find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. There's more to come. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience in us and how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue character, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. 
in alert expectancy such as this, we're never left feeling shortchanged. Quite the contrary. We can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Can I just tell you, your next chapter is going to be marvelous. You have to hear God speaking into your life and do what he tells you to do. And even when it's hard, hang in there because it's in the hard places that he's developing the most important part of your life, which is the character of Jesus Christ. Persevere, get through it, and hope for more. The band's going to teach us a little song, and uh, then we're going to close our time together. Thank you, guys.